Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11 is our text for this morning. This is part 2 of a message that I began last week in verses 5 through 11, titled Aggressive Mortification. Aggressive Mortification. So this is part 2 of that message. And the Word of God says this in Colossians 3 and verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also... Put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is, neither, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all... And in all. Powerful, powerful passage. And as we've seen, this is part of Paul's transition to chapter 3 of this letter to the Colossian believers, which deals with a lot more of the the practical implications of the, the preeminence of Christ and what that means for Christian living. And that's why our series is titled Christ Centered Living that we're in right now. And if you remember, really chapter 3 and verse 1 is a transition to the practical portion of the letter, but it's really an expansion of something that Paul has already commanded them back in chapter 2 and verse 6, if you go there with me. Chapter 2 and verse 6, if you remember, Paul says this, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. In other words, Paul, back in chapter 2 verse 6, told them you've you've made the necessary commitment to receive Christ, which means to embrace His person and who He is, as well as what He's done. But you need to lead your life in accordance with Christ. Walk in Him. Conduct yourself in accordance with Christ. In other words, live a Christ-centered life with Christ at the center of your Christian walk. But, as we know... As was the case, as is the case for us, it was the case for the Colossians. There are always hindrances, beloved, to centering our lives upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was the case for the Colossians. So Paul, in verses 8 through 23 of chapter 2, if you remember, dealt with, exposed some of the false teaching that was infiltrating the church in Colossae, that was, that was distracting them away from living a Christ-centered life. In chapter 2, verse 8, if you remember, he dealt with empty philosophy which he said is the opposite of living a life according to Christ. When we embrace empty, vain philosophy. In chapter 2, verse 16, he talked about the issue of, of legalism. Those things that tend to, to distract us away from Jesus Christ. And he made the point in chapter 2, verse 17, that those things that were being emphasized before them were shadows of what was to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. A shadow is not the reality of things, right? Right? but points to the to one who is the substance, and in this case, Jesus Christ. So he was saying, don't follow after those things that lead you away, that distract you away from Jesus Christ. Verses 18 through 19, he dealt with the whole issue of experiential mysticism. 
And those things tend to focus on other things rather than lead them to Jesus Christ and don't lead them to ultimately grow in the Christian life when they focus upon them. And then in verses 20 to 23, he dealt with the issue of asceticism. Dealing with things that are merely external. Rules and regulations that are a misinterpretation of what God, God calls us to in His Word. And those things lead us away from Jesus Christ. That have the appearance of religion. But really it's ultimately self-imposed, self-created religion that isn't about Christ Jesus Himself. So all of those things Paul exposes in verses 8 through 23 that lead us away from focusing our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ and living our life centered upon Jesus. He says then in chapter 3 verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, if you have, you have died with Christ, you've been buried with Christ, you've been raised with Christ, God has done a, a, fun, a foundational change from within, giving you a new nature raised you up with Christ, you're in union with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Don't focus on those things that distract you and lead you away from Jesus Christ. Focus upon Him and His kingdom priorities, on those things that are heavenly, those things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of His Father. That is the right perspective or the right mindset that they are to have as believers and the same perspective and mindset that we must have if we are to live a Christ-centered life, beloved. It's the same thing for us. There are always going to be things that are going to distract us away from our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our mindset and our perspective should be what Paul says in verse 4, that Christ is our life. And we're looking forward to Him, that one day He's going to be revealed in glory and we will be with Him and reign with Him as well. Amen? As believers, that is our perspective, the right mindset that we must have if we are going to live a Christ-centered life. But also, now in verses 5-17, through 17, he's going to talk about the right practice of the believer. And that right practice in verses 5-17 through 17 is twofold. On the one hand, on the negative side, in verses 5-11, through 11, he calls us to be putting off the old person. We are no longer that old person. We are positionally made righteous before God. We are a new creation. And yet we know that we haven't been perfected, right? That the Christian life is a daily struggle, a daily fight against sin and the power of the Spirit of God. And we're not called to be passive in the process of sanctification, but active. The Christian life is not a let go and let God journey. So in verses 5 through through 11, Paul really focuses on, on two overarching commands that call us to be abandoning the old life that we may grow in Jesus Christ. And then, also in verses 12 through 17, as we're going to see in the weeks ahead, we're also called on the positive side to be putting on, really, Christ-like virtue. Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because really, all of those qualities that we're going to see in verses 12 through 17 are ultimately modeled and exemplified by our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So we're in this... Uh, part here of the right practice of putting off on the negative side, putting off sin in our lives. And like I said last week, the Christian life is a fight, isn't it? I read you the quote from John Owen from his book, The Mortification of Sin, where he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
And that is essentially what Paul is saying in this passage here in verses 5 through 11. We have to be aggressively engaging our sin in the power of the Spirit by the guidance of God's holy word because we are new creatures, beloved. New creatures. So we saw the first command in verses 5 through 7. Christian, put your sin to death. Put your sin to death. And we saw that the command had to do specifically with a category of sexual sin. That sexual sin should not even be named among us as believers. And now we see the second command in verses 8 through 11. Christian, discard your sin. Christian, discard your sin. And really this category of sins has to do with our our social interaction with one another. The warning here for us, if we walk away with some things, I want you to remember this. These sins, including sexual sin, but also the social sins that we're going to see in verses 8 through 11, beloved, we must aggressively and actively be pursuing to mortify, to slay, to put aside, because it will affect our Christian community, our Christian unity. And so Paul says, Christian, discard your sin. Both the commands of verse uh, verse 5 of chapter 3 and verse 8 are parallel commands with very unique kinds of metaphors. And we're going to see that. And the crucial uh, thing that Paul is, is highlighting through these two verbs is that we must abandon this old life if we're going to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you are a believer this morning, our Lord Jesus came that we may be redeemed from sin and released from sin's grip. Amen? He came for that, to set us aside that we would be holy, that we would be saints, those who are not known for practicing sin any longer, but those who recognize the reality that we are new creatures and we're called to work that out in the power of the Spirit in the way that we live. Amen? That's what He's calling us to here. An aggressive mortification, killing slain of our sin, but not in our own strength, but in the power of the Spirit of God. So look at this second command in verse 8. Christian, discard your sin. Discard your sin. And as we saw last week, there are different aspects to this command here. First of all, I want you to notice the recipients of the command. In verse 8, he says, But now, but now, you also. And he's going to tell us the specific content, the command itself. But he says, now, now what? Now that you are a new person, right, from the previous context, you're no longer that old person. You're a new creature. You're a new man, a new woman if you're a believer. And this is, what you are, this is the way that you're called to live. He's speaking to them as believers. Those who are known for a different way of life now in Christ. We are different, beloved. We're Christians. We're united with Jesus Christ. Our greatest goal and passion in life is no longer to live for ourselves, but to know Christ and to be like Christ. Amen? So this command is for believers. Believers are called to to be different than the world. I love this. I've been pondering this so much. More and more in our world and our society, there's the blending of the lines of holy living and the world. More and more. And Paul, if we get one point from Paul writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God here in chapter 3, is that Christians are called to be separate from the world. Separate in our thinking and in our activities, in our pursuits and our priorities, in whatever agenda we have to be about the agenda of Christ on this earth. We're called to be different, beloved. So this command is for those who who are in union with Jesus Christ, who are called to be separate from the world. But now you also, believers... 
Now notice, what are Christians called to do here? Notice the content of this command in verse 8. Put them all aside. Put them all aside. And the metaphor here is a beautiful metaphor. It pictures the, the putting off of old clothing. The divesting ourselves or the discarding of old clothing. We are new creatures in Christ. And we, beloved, now if I can put it this way, we wear different attire, right? We are, we are positionally declared righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And practically, we must flesh that out, work that out in our pursuit of righteousness. We are to be wearing a different kind of attire. Paul says, you are a new creature. Your attire should be reflective of the change that God has already accomplished in your heart by faith in Jesus Christ. You must reflect that. You know, in Southeast Asia, there's a wonderful ministry that focuses in Southeast Asia on rescuing children from sex trafficking. And I'll never forget hearing of the testimony of a little boy in this country who there was a group of donors who was there and they gathered all the children in this ministry building as well as the donors. And this little boy gets up and starts sharing his testimony. He's no more than eight or nine years old. And very lively and vivaciously, he says, do you remember me? Do you remember me and what I looked like when I came in here? I was dirty. I was filthy. I, I smelled. And then he points over to his little sister who's sitting down and he says, Do you remember my little sister and what she looked like and how she smelled and how she had dirty clothing? And then he continues and he starts talking about the fact that they took them in. He says, and they cleansed us and they gave us new clothing and they washed us, and they bathed us, and now look at us. We look different. But then it got better. Then it got better. He starts saying, and here's where we heard about Jesus. And we heard the gospel, and my sister and I gave our lives to Jesus, and now we're saved from our sins. And he starts expanding upon that very joyfully. See, for that little boy, beloved... The most important thing was the inward transformation that God had done in his life and in the life of his little sister. And he understood that the external cleansing was only significant in the, in the fact that they had received an inward transformation from God, an inward change. That was a beautiful picture to me and has always been of what happens in the Christian life, right? But it's the other way around in that God does the work inside of us as believers and then we're called in our attitude and in our conduct to reflect the change that God has already done for us from within. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that we are laying aside the old, dirty, filthy lifestyle that we were characterized and known by because now Jesus is our life, right? It's all about Christ. It's all about exalting Him in the power of the Spirit of God in our lives as we put aside sin. That's what the Christian life is all about, discarding those things which characterized our old person. Romans thirteen twelve says, The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. What a wonderful passage. It's describing really what's taken place in their lives as believers. You're no longer to walk in the deeds of darkness. There's been light shed into your heart, in other words, by who Jesus Christ has come into their hearts and lives. And they are to reflect that in living in the light. 
right? Which is metaphorical for living a life of holiness and righteousness. By the way, the voice here of the verb has a sense of you yourselves lay aside. God has already done the fundamental change in us. Now you and I as believers in our practice are to renounce those sinful desires and activities that characterized the old man. The old man. And beloved, I want to remind you, he's not talking about behavior modification here. He's not. Or simply being a a better person. He's talking to believers who have had God step into their lives and has raised us from spiritual death. And so if you're, if you are an unbeliever this morning, Paul here is not calling you outside of Christ, living a rebellious life for yourself to modify your behavior and to simply be a better person so that you can live this out. There, it's, it's impossible for you to live this kind of life in a way that glorifies God. What you need to do is turn from your sins first and foremost and submit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your sins. In order that you would be able to live a life that truly glorifies God, God's wrath must be removed from you first and foremost. You need to be forgiven of your sins. And Jesus came, did He not, to die on the cross for those who believe, to pay the payment that you and I could never, ever pay for those sins. We must trust in Jesus Christ and His all-sufficient sacrifice that we may be reconciled to God, that we may be forgiven of our sins. So what Paul is calling for here is not some uh, uh, method of of making yourself a better person so that you can glorify God. This is a a call for those who, who who have been transformed from the inside out, that we would reflect that change that God has already done by faith in Jesus Christ. Now notice the specifics of the command here. What is this clothing that we are called to discard of in verse 8? Notice, but now you also... Put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. And then he says in verse 9, it's actually a command, do not lie to one another or stop lying to one another. This is essentially the old clothing that Paul is commanding them to lay aside. Now, before looking at these, we need to realize that When we pursue holiness in the Christian life, we oftentimes have this very personal, individualistic uh, approach to our own sanctification, as if pursuing these things and laying these things aside is basically only for our own personal benefit. But there is this this saturation in this passage, as we're going to see, of the fact that when you pursue holiness and you lay aside sin, it's not just for your own personal benefit. Certainly you want to be... Um, uh, uh, the object of God's favor and God's pleasure as a believer in practicing holiness, but it also impacts the community of Christ, does it not? It impacts other people around you for the glory of God. When you pursue holiness, conversely, when we are not pursuing holiness, it impacts other people around you. Whether you can visibly see that or quantify it or not, it does, beloved. So there's this, as we see the discarding of these sins, there's both a personal and communal implication and application, okay? And we're going to see that a little bit more. You know, it's a beautiful thing to have been saved and brought into union with Christ, right? Amen? But on the other hand, there's this added benefit that we have as believers that we've been put into a community of believers called the church, The church is a body, one body. 
The church is God's temple, a family, really a manifestation of the grace of God. You are a part of, of, of a beautiful building that's being built in conformity to Christ. We're part members of one another. We have a common bond in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And yet, as you and I know, this beautiful gift of fellowship with one another can be disrupted when we deal sinfully with one another. When God's grace shown toward each and every one of us in Christ Jesus doesn't in turn lead us, beloved, to graciously deal with one another. And before you know it, there is disruption in the Christian community. So I want you to just be reminded that the Christian church believers should be characterized as being a gracious group of people. Why? In response to the gracious gospel of God, right? We ought to be the most forgiving people. We ought to be the people who are more willing and aggressive in reconciling with one another and putting off the sins that we're going to see because we recognize that there's not only negative personal impact when we don't pursue holiness, but there's also impact upon the Christian community. And we want to experience the joy of being God's people on this earth because it's already a pretty lonely society, isn't it? There aren't a whole lot of people following after the ways of God. And so as a people, we must stay, remain unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what are these social sins that lead to disruption and unity in the church? Let's look at these, okay? Now, I want you to notice one thing before we head into these, start looking at some of these individual sins. In verse 5, we saw in the, the category of sexual sins, really the outward manifestation, then to the root cause of, those, of that manifestation, of those sexual sins. Here in verse 8, we see the Paul begins with essentially the root cause, and then he talks about the sinful manifestation of that root cause. We're going to see that. And he begins with anger. He says, discard of anger. The word refers to an overflow or abounding with internal emotion. It, had, it pictured the fruit swelling with juice or of a pond overflowing with fish. Here is of a, a, the swelling with anger. And the root cause of the verbal sins that Paul will mention has everything to do with this particular sin in the human heart, and we're gonna, as we're going to see. Mark it. Unresolved anger, beloved, in your own heart as a believer, not rightly dealt with, leads to bitter resentment that eventually will manifest itself in your social interaction with other people, beginning in your home and onto the life of the church, in your work environment, in your neighborhood. We must be dealing with the root cause first and foremost. Notice, he says, wrath next. Unresolved anger then leads to this next term, wrath which refers mo most often to active anger. To active anger. It is translated in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 20, in, uh, in fact, as angry tempers. Angry tempers. Galatians 2.20 as outbursts of anger. So now we have anger boiling over. Boiling over. See, in our culture, we use term, and I've done it too, where we start talking about people who are just passionate. You know, well, the reason why he expresses himself or she expresses herself that way is because we're just passionate, right? Sometimes that may be the case, but other times, more often than not, it's angry tempers and outbursts of anger that are fleshing themselves out, right? With the root cause having been unresolved anger in our own hearts. And that is the idea here. It's the, you know, in our culture, we call it giving somebody a piece of your mind, right? 
We even joke around as believers uh, in, in church sometimes how, you know, I just want to give that person a piece of my mind, right? Well, oftentimes that's essentially anger being expressed in a sinful manner towards somebody else or putting someone in their place or telling someone off, we used to say in junior high, right? I want to tell that girl off for what she did to me. Just sinful anger being expressed, wrathful expressions. But notice that this is not the end of it. If not dealt with, anger and wrath not rightly resolved will lead to a settling into a state of, notice in verse 8, of malice. Malice. Malice can refer to evil in general. But here, it describes an inward, malicious, and vicious disposition or attitude toward other people. Malice, in fact, often appears with our previous two words, along with bitterness in other contexts, such as Ephesians 4.31. Where Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. In other words, all of these vices, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, are, are a family closely knit and related. And they are all malicious things, malicious expressions beginning from the heart. Notice the progression thus far then. Notice. Settled internal anger not dealt with leads to bitterness, right? That's not in the text here, but it is in Ephesians 4.31. Bitterness, which eventually expresses itself in outbursts of anger, wrathful expressions of anger, which left unresolved settles into a malicious, vicious attitude that, listen, looks for the opportunity to express itself for the purpose of harming others. And that, beloved, can be explicit or it can be very, very subtle. But the root of it all is anger. Anger. And it goes even deeper, doesn't it? Where does, how do we, how do we, why do we get angry as Christians? Why? Isn't it because of, often because of unmet expectations? Things that we expect from other people, whether our spouses or our kids or one another as brethren? And when those expectations are not met, or those desires, even if good desires are not met, how do we respond? We respond with anger or frustration that is sinful because we didn't get what we wanted. We didn't get what we wanted. Think about the husband who requires and demands constantly respect, right? Amen, brothers? We've all, amen? Not very many amens. Come on, brothers. I'm like that, right? There have been times when I fall into that danger explicitly or mostly subtle we want respect is that wrong doesn't ephesians 5 33 say see to it that the wife respect her husband bad desire or good desire good desire commanded by god to the wife but it can become a sinful thing when we as men make those an idol of worship and all of a sudden if we don't get that we're constantly constantly getting upset and frustrated and then we will eventually express it and boil over right what about the wife who wants her husband to love her good desire or bad desire ladies good desire right does god command husbands to love their wives yes Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. They're commanded to love their wives. But that too can become an idol in a wife's heart and life, right? And all of a sudden, when she doesn't get that, however she may define that even, then the wife can become angry. 
Unmet expectations, unmet desires, even good desires and, and holy expectations from God's Word can become that in our own hearts, beloved. What about children or youth? When you don't get what you want, maybe you have expectations from your parents. Things that you have visualized that you should be able to do. And when your parents say no, right? How do you respond to that? You can get angry and frustrated. And before you know it, you have resentful, bitter disposition of heart. And eventually, it will flesh itself out. Now, for others of you, it may be more subtle and passive. Maybe you just avoid your parents altogether. But all of those expressions are driven by a heart that didn't get what he or she wanted. And it leads you to anger, bitter resentment toward your mom and dad. See, that's how it, ex- it expresses itself, does it not? We idolize and worship our expectations and our desires. And when we don't get those things, we become angry and frustrated. And eventually they would flesh themselves out. Now, an objection by someone may be this. I mean, Kempis, what about Ephesians 4.26? Ephesians 4.26 says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Aren't there times, Pastor Kempis, when it is right to be angry? I mean, wouldn't Paul says, be angry, yet do not sin. So what's the answer to that? And the answer would be that there are times when we are even commanded to be angry, right? But he says in Ephesians 4.26, but do not sin. So how do you know that you have sinful anger as opposed to righteous anger? How do you know? If implied in this text is the reality that there are going to be times when we, when we get angry and yet we ought not to sin in the process. How do you know the difference? Let me give you three things, okay? One, remember that righteous anger is concerned first and foremost for whose glory? The glory of God. The glory of God. And so you and I need to ask ourselves, am I angry in this situation because I've taken this particular thing personally or because I am concerned for the glory of God? Which one is it? Am I angry because someone has sinned against me or am I angry because they've sinned against God? And the consequence of that, of course, is they've brought harm to me as well. But is it about the glory of God? See, think about the times when you get angry. More often than not, we get angry because we've taken something personal, right? We've taken something personal. I'm that way. And what do we want to do? We want to, we want to uh, attack in return. We want to retaliate. We give little consideration oftentimes in the midst of our sinful anger to the fact that the person has offended God first and foremost. And He is the one that they need to ask forgiveness to first and foremost. And yes, then their brothers and sisters whom they have hurt. Remember Jesus' overturning of the tables in the temple? What, What drove the Lord Jesus to do that in John 2? He sees these people doing this. And what had the temple become? A place of merchandise, right? A place where rather than people worshiping and glorifying His Father, they were selling and it was essentially had become a business in that temple. It was for Jesus about the, the glory and the worship of His Father. And these people were robbing His Father of His glory. And zeal, zeal drove Him to do what He did in John chapter 2. What else? What else? Obviously in them selling Money that way, I mean, uh, 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 doing business in the temple in that manner. They were essentially sending the message to people that they needed to earn and work their way to the Father, right? 
So Jesus' zeal also was a concern for the people who were there. And so my point, beloved, is that righteous anger is concerned about God's glory first and foremost. First and foremost. So we have to ask ourselves that. Closely related to that, number two is that righteous anger is concerned with honoring the Word of God. With honoring the Word of God. Listen, not our own opinions or our preferences first and foremost. Unless those opinions have, have um, uh, uh, origin in the Word of God. But, wait, but ask yourself, whenever I get angry, am I concerned for people honoring the Word of God? Walking in obedience to the Word of God because I love them, because I want them to obey the Word of God, because ultimately what is best for them is that they would obey a good and gracious and merciful God who wants what is best for them. Is that why you get angry? Because oftentimes we get upset because people are not aligning themselves to our own preferences rather than because someone is an actual sin against something in the Word of God, right? Righteous anger throbs, beloved, listen, with kingdom concerns. Righteous anger throbs with kingdom concerns, not with my concerns or your concerns first and foremost. Our concerns are subordinate to the Word of God. And so we must, we must be careful that we are about people honoring God's word. Isn't that what Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day? You hypocrites, you set aside the commandments of God for the sake of your, what? Traditions. It's not about the word of God. It's about what you guys have created in your interpretations of the word of God. You say, you're self-righteous, you're, you're hypocrites. You're missing the spirit of the, of the word of God that it must be from the heart. God was always after, through His law, a heart righteousness that then fleshed itself out onto their behavior and conduct. Jesus had a zeal for the glory of the, or for the honor of the Word of God. That's what He wanted. So when you think about our Lord Jesus' anger, it was intensely motivated by His Father's glory, His Father's Word being honored, and that people would not be misled. Our Lord was a protector of His flock, wasn't He? He wanted people to be, to be focusing upon His Father and His clearly given Word, not the traditions of men. He had come to do the will of the Father and He wanted people to walk in accordance with the will of the Father. And those self-righteous religious leaders were standing in the way of that. And so our Lord often displayed righteous anger toward those things. Thirdly, righteous anger is resolved righteously righteous anger is resolved righteously and what i mean by that by that is this when there is righteous anger present beloved it is always connected with godly self-control kindness and the right degree of intensity right it isn't just explosive it isn't without bounds if you will if you are exercising righteous anger then one of the marks will be that you're going to deal with things in a godly manner with gentleness, with kindness, and with patience. Amen? That is a manifestation of that. Because it's a settled disposition of, of being concerned for the glory of God and the honor of God's Word. It's not personal first and foremost. So even if you're, if you're, so, if you're righteously angry, you're going to deal with things in a manner that is, that is of manifesting the fruit of the Spirit. And more often than not, we don't do that, right? We get sinfully angry, we resort to abusive and destructive speech toward the person we are angry against. We're all at fault for that. Amen? Every single one of us can have that weakness. 
So those are three particular things that I think are helpful to us to distinguish between between sinful anger and righteous anger. Are you concerned for the glory of God? Are you concerned for the honor of the Word of God in people's lives? Because that's what is best for them ultimately. And is it, is it connected or, or does it come, your righteous anger, with a, a, a commitment to resolve things in the manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit as well? Okay? Now, generally speaking, Scripture warns us against a quick, angry temper, right? Listen to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty or quick temper exalts folly. So there... The wise person is known as a person who is slow to anger. And the fool is characterized by being a quick-tempered individual. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 9. Excuse me. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Paul, with reference to a response to the Word of God, he says in James chapter 1, verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers, but let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to what? To anger. And then he gives the reason. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Mark it. Sinful, abusive anger never leads to the righteous life that God desires in you or in the lives of those whom you are talking to. It doesn't. It doesn't bear that fruit. So rather than being quick to anger, Scripture calls us to deal with it right away and deal with it in the right manner, right? Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. And then he says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What does he say? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let the day pass. Because if you allow anger to fester in your heart, chances are that that anger will find outward expression in a manner that you don't want it to be expressed. You must deal with it right away. In fact, sinful, unresolved anger, beloved, toward others is very serious to our Heavenly Father, isn't it? Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and following. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. I find it astounding, by the way, in that in in that passage, that ultimately both the verbal abuser and the murderer are motivated by the same heart anger, right? Our Lord gets at that. And then he says in verse 23 of Matthew 5, So if you, are, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Notice that. Notice that. It is not only the angry person that has a responsibility to go to his or her brother or sister in Christ, but also if you and I are aware that someone has something against us or is angry toward us, what are we called to do, beloved? We are called to inquire about the matter, right? Many a time. I have not meant to, to um, get, uh, make somebody angry at me, even unawares. But I've had people over the years come and say, Hey, pa- Pastor Kempis or brother, you offended me and you caused consternation in me with this particular issue. And I was totally taken back. Brother, I did not mean to do that. I did not mean to do that. 
But see, we're also called, if we're aware of somebody potentially having been offended with us, to go and initiate making sure that the conflict is resolved, right? Because if we don't, it's going to find expression unto our speech, beloved. And that's what he says in verse 8. Notice, this type of inward malicious attitude leads to what? Slander. Slander. The word is blasphemy on there. We get our word blasphemy from there. When directed toward God. And when it's directed toward humans, it has this sense of abusive language that damages and destroys others and their reputation. That's the sense. 2 Timothy 3.2 says that in the last days, men or women will be characterized for being revilers or slanderers. This word is closely related to the next one. Look at verse 8. Abusive speech. It's the speaking of disgraceful words against others. Speech that instead of imparting grace or a blessing to someone else, what does it do? It tears down and undermines a person's character and reputation. Instead of imparting as a fruit of the gospel, grace and favor and kindness and edifying somebody. There's abusive speech that comes from their mouth. You know, the statement is made. It is not gossip or slander if it's, if it's true. It's not gossip or slander if it's true. Is that consistent with the biblical text here, I ask? The answer is no. We are called to go to one another with our concerns directly rather than going to other people. Even, beloved, if it's true, even if something is legitimate, we are not called to characteristically be going to other people with concerns. We ought to be going to one another rather than resorting to slander, which is the breaking down of somebody's character and reputation, or abusive speech that damages other people. Can I just tell you, in many, many churches that I know, that this is a, there's a famine going on in this area of people not going to one another and, and being motivated by the, by, the, uh, by the good of the other person actually going directly to that person. I don't know how many churches I know of right now that there are major issues taking place amongst them because people on the very basic level did not go to one another. Instead, they resorted to abusive speech or slander or going to other people. We are called to go to one another, beloved. So notice the progression here. Abusive speech that hurts and harms others begins with a settled swelling of anger in our hearts, which ultimately goes back to the issue of unmet expectations and desires, right? When we don't get what we want, we become angry, even with good things. And then this internal anger, when not dealt with, expresses itself in wrathful outbursts of anger. And still not dealt with, if this wrath is not laid aside, it settles into a malicious state which looks to harm other people maliciously, viciously. It could be, it could be active or it could be passive. This malicious attitude then will express itself in destructive slander, the defamation of someone's character and reputation, of abusive speech, speech that tears down, that is not edifying, that is not looking for the success of somebody else. That is not motivated by the, the gracious gospel of our Lord. But instead breaks people down and their reputation. What are we called to do instead? Romans twelve fourteen, Bless. Even in the worst case scenario. Bless those who persecute you. In the worst case scenario. Your enemies, if you will. Those that don't care about you or your faith. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Romans 12, 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And listen to this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Beloved, our lips should be used to bless and to be those who are peacemakers. Amen? That's what we should be known by. A gracious community, beloved, listen to me, is a community that in response and as a fruit of the transforming gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is a peacemaking community. A community that is committed in the power of the Spirit of God to turn, not not sweep sin under the rug, but deal with it directly, right? And seek the forgiveness of one another when offended and going to one another, beloved. Can I just encourage us to give heed to what God's Word is saying here and exhort us that when we do not, we suffer the consequences of that sin. Amen? We do. We don't realize the damage that can be caused by sinful expressions of anger. Do you remember growing up? Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Remember that, right? I heard that so many times. You know, I've realized over my lifetime that that is absolutely not true. Words hurt and words matter. You know, um, some of you know my testimony, but um, when I was in Mexico City, um, my biological mother was constantly beaten by my stepfather. And um, he, would, he was very abusive physically. But you know what? He had three other kids, and I was the only child that wasn't his, but he had three kids with my mom of his own that were biologically his, and he would also abuse them physically, hit them. And yet he never touched me. And you know what he told me? I'm never going to spank you physically or hit you because you're not my son. You're not my son. And I remember that I would have rather... Wanting his love as a kid, I would have rather have him physically beat me than tell me that verbally. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me? I don't think so. And many of you have experienced that, haven't you? Do words hurt? Many of you still have the baggage of things that were said to you, maybe growing up in an abusive home or whatever your circumstance in life was. And those things, more than even physical abuse at times, can be so damaging to a child. And yet in the gospel, isn't it amazing that we find healing for those things as well? That now if I saw my stepfather, I want to share the gospel with him. I want want, want him to come to know Christ. And that there would be fullness of forgiveness for all of those things. But the reality of it is, those words all hurt. And who amongst us, beloved, is not at fault for sinful anger, right? Who amongst us is not at fault? This happens in marriages. Many marriages can struggle because of angry, careless words. You know, the more familiar you become with your spouse, the easier it becomes at times if you're not careful and you're not walking in the power of the Spirit, being guided by God's Holy Word, it becomes a lot easier to say things that are snappy, sinfully toward your spouse, right? Because after all, they're going to be around forever for the rest of your life. It's okay to express yourself that way. No, says God. No, put it aside. Put sinful anger aside and expressions of abusive speech toward your spouse. That is not characteristic of a holy, godly life, husband. Me included. Wives, that can happen as well, right? With you. 
Many, oftentimes, just allowing the harboring of sinful anger and frustration in your own heart, oftentimes for good expectations that you may have that are very biblical for your husband. But if you're not careful, you can lash out at your husband and live in this state of bitterness and resentment. And what you're known for in your home toward your husband is abusive speech that tears him down, that breaks him down. Where does that come from? Anger in the heart. Anger in the heart. It can happen... And our parenting, right? Young children, older children, whatever. We as parents can be so careless with our angry words. Oftentimes, even with good motivation for their good, for the glory of God. And yet we can do it in a sinful, sinful manner. Careless, angry words expressed toward our children, beloved, is one classic way to exasperate our children, right? To exasperate them. We're going to see this in Colossians chapter 3 verses 18 and following. We're spending four or five Sundays on the family. Classic way to exasperate your child or your teenager is to be sinfully angry at them and to express things in an abusive manner verbally. Even with, with good intentions. And so what is the answer in all of these things? Whether even, even in our relationships in the church, it's to humble ourselves, beloved, and ask for forgiveness, Right? That's what we learn in the gospel. Listen, it's not that we will never sin or fail in the area of our tongues and the way that we sin against each other or even harboring sinful anger in our hearts and seeing it manifest itself externally. It's that when it happens, are we going to deal with it in a Christ-like kind of way? And what is that? That we confess our sin to that person, to that child, to that spouse, to that brother or sister in Christ. That we ask them for forgiveness. Listen, if you as a parent don't practice that from the time that your kids are little, asking for their forgiveness, you are giving them mixed signals with regards to the gospel. Because the gospel should not tell, you should not be communicating to your children that now that you're a believer, you, you are okay sinning against them verbally with abusive speech. We model the gospel by sinning that way and then asking for forgiveness from our own kids. So that they see a picture of reconciliation. So that we can then point them to the, to the forgiveness that we find by God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Listen, brothers and sisters, it's not the issue that we're not going to sin against our kids. That we're not going to sin against our spouses or one another. It's what we do with our sin that matters. Are we going to deal with it in a holy, godly manner, confess it, and ask for forgiveness? Go to one another rather than going to others who can do nothing about your problem with that person. Amen? That's what we need to be about. Well, there are some practical guidelines that I want to get into, and this is going to be a third-parter, okay? So I'm going to have my brother Tim Adams come up after my prayer, and let's pray together, okay? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at this text, so much more that we're going to be looking at, Lord, and yet I'm so convicted personally, and I pray that there would be conviction in our hearts, even as a congregation, whether as husbands, wives, single people, whether as brothers or sisters in Christ, in our marriages, in our relationships with neighbors, in our workplace, wherever, Lord. Father, you call us to practice Christ-like virtues, to be setting aside and putting to death, mortifying, slain in the power of your Spirit, those things that hinder harmony and peace in the Christian community. Father, grant us grace by your Spirit to be people who are quick, even today, to repent 
and turn from those sins that we have committed, Lord, against one another or against others. And that we may reflect gospel forgiveness. That we may be a gracious community as a manifestation and as a fruit of the gospel in our lives. Father, help us to be those kinds of people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.